In November, world leaders will get together at COP26 to negotiate on climate change and see if we can keep climate change from destroying just about everything for humanity. At these meetings, will our leaders put in place meaningful, significant systems to actually solve this problem? Or will it be a bunch of meaningless, empty, broken promises that waste more years that we can't afford to waste? Today, we'll look at the options. Let's dig in. This is the joy of saving the human race, where we try to get the world to cooperate. It's so the human race can avoid some urgent global problems that could mean the end of civilization and cause lots of suffering around the world. But also, we just want to have a good world that we enjoy and we can feel proud of. We are not just citizens of our own countries. We are citizens of the human race. Let's learn to manage ourselves responsibly. Let's help the human race act like it wants to last for a while. I think humans are awesome and the human race is worth saving. There is no time to waste, so let's do this. Hi friends, welcome to the joy of saving the human race. I'm Shelby Murtis. Thanks for joining me. So on this show, we talk about the big catastrophic threats to the human race that we're facing, and mostly about how we can get the kind of global cooperation that we need in order to deal with these global threats that no one country alone can solve. So today, we're going to talk about climate change, uh, one of the biggest of those threats. Thankfully, climate change has been in the news a lot lately. Um, there's some new reports coming out, new science, and also in November, there will be a very big international negotiation on climate change called COP26. This fall is an incredibly important moment for humanity. Um, this meeting in November is a really big deal of historical significance, so we need to talk about it. Today, I will argue that this process, this negotiation, is not designed properly. Um, and we need a very different approach to what's been happening so far. Um, and I'll dig into some detail on that. So because you've been hearing about climate change in the news already, I'm not today going to just repeat what everyone else is saying. Um, I think today I've got some fresh ideas that are just not getting the attention they deserve. So recently, I recorded a long episode for you about climate change and destruction of the natural environment. And I scrapped it. I threw it away. It wasn't good enough for you because you deserve the very best I can give you. The reason I didn't like it was because I was offering this long laundry list of damage that's being done to the environment thinking that if I just give enough information and teach people enough that they'll, you know, understand the environment more and take action. But I realized that you've heard all that already. And everyone has heard that already. You know, we had our first Earth Day in 1970, over 50 years ago. So since then, we've had the, the modern environmental movement that's been warning us about the destruction of nature for the last 50 years. Uh, 
And climate change, we've known about since the 1970s. And by the 1980s, science had really well established that this was happening and that this was a threat. And that was over 30 years ago. So we've been talking for decades now about the climate and destruction of nature. Everyone knows, but yet it's getting worse. So when I go out in public, I'm often shocked by the level of overconsumption that I see out there. Um, people are just consuming way beyond what's needed for a decent life. And this is amid all of us knowing how harmful this is. So on my worst days, sometimes I think humans are just stupid and don't care. Luckily, that mood is rare. I also get tempted to think that politicians are all corrupt and simply don't care. And luckily, that mood is also rare. But like these kind of frustrations can lead me and others to just think like it's all just hopeless and everybody's you know, screwed up and just it's not going to work. But that kind of outlook is not helpful or empowering. So that's why I often don't let myself go there. And it's also simplistic because we can't solve problems that way by just dismiss dismissing everybody as stupid or careless. It's important to analyze the psychology of the choices that people make and understand why people are choosing these things. And the key element here, I think, is the mismatch between what's rational for the individual versus what's good for the society. So rational individuals together, when you know, totaled up, can create a crazy outcome. And same for individual countries, each doing what makes sense in their own best interest adds up to a world outcome that's devastating with climate change. So that's kind of the gist of what I'll share with you today, and I'll, I'll dig in more to that psychology in a moment. But right now, I want to just have us all understand the importance of right now and what's going on right now. So we've got this November meeting that I described, the COP26. COP stands for the Conference of the Parties. Uh, if I were in charge of naming things, I would have named that differently. But here we have it, the Conference of the Parties. And it's 26 because it's the 26th annual meeting on climate change in this process that's been going for years. The last big milestone in this process was the Paris Agreement in 2015, which you've probably heard about. This is where countries around the world basically set up this process where countries would make voluntary commitments um, and offer how much they're willing to um, cut their emissions and how they hope to do that. So it's all voluntary. There's no laws. There's no you know binding agreement or anything. Um, so here we are now, we're five years after that, and there's been some major reassessment of um, those Paris um, commitments. Also, this COP26 is the first time these folks have met in a couple years because we missed last year for pandemic. Um, since the last meeting in these couple years, we've had just a crazy shit show of wildfires, floods, storms, melting glaciers, 
uh, our ocean currents stalling, etc. Like we've just had all this evidence in the world that the climate is in severe situation. Um, also, recently, the IPCC, which is the International Panel on Climate Change, um, that convenes thousands of scientists to really rally together and compile all the scientific evidence on climate and what's happening, they just came out with a report saying that basically we're screwed. Like, this is an incredibly difficult situation that we're in. Um, many for many years, climate modeling has show has tried to predict the future and what um, future temperature increases would look like based on our emissions. And there's a variety of um, there's a variety of models showing different severity of what's going to happen. Basically, the way it's been playing out is that our temperature increases are worse than what most of the scientists predicted. Like, it's coming out as the worst and most severe of the models they projected going forward. So it's turning out bad. And so the IPCC, in their recent report this summer, basically told us that if we don't make really big changes really quickly, there's going to be a ton of damage to the world in which we live. And then... There was also a release of a report by the United Nations assessing these voluntary agreements that countries made at the Paris um, you know, conference in 2015. And some of those countries have even offered newer, more updated plans that are supposed to be a little better and stronger. If we look at all the plans that countries have submitted, um, we're just totally not on track. So currently, um, since pre-industrial times, the Earth has warmed 1.1 degree Celsius. So this is starting in around 1850 or so when humans started using fossil fuels. Um, we've had 1.1 degree Celsius of warming since then. And at this degree of warming, we've seen these wildfires in many places around the world and the floods and the storms and the glaciers and the ocean currents and the, everything else. Like it's already gone way too far and we're already seeing more damage than we really should have tolerated. Um, but scientists have set for us this benchmark of 1.5 degrees Celsius by which we really need to contain our emissions and stay within that 1.5 degrees. Because if it goes beyond that, things are going to get really bad. And I do not look forward to seeing 1.5 degrees because right now at 1.1, we're already seeing a lot of damage. Um, but that 1.5 is the agreed like threshold, like we really need to keep the world within this. But Recent assessments tell us that if we sum up these 2015 Paris um, agreements that countries have offered, those will give us 2.7 degrees Celsius of warming by the end of the century. Now, we need to stay within 1.5 for safety, but even after all this um, celebration of you know, world cooperation that came out of Paris, 
they come up with agreements that give us 2.7 degrees of warming by the end of the century. And, and the end of the century could sound a long way off, but it'll be a painful route there. Like, it's not like, you know, 80 years from now, it all kicks in. It will be a gradual acceleration of pain to that 2.7. After Paris in 2015, everybody celebrated and patted themselves on the back and felt good about the progress that was made. But then, since then, emissions have still increased in the world. So the problem is not only that emissions are high, it's that they're still going up. And so by 2030, we expect, even with all these pledges, that emissions will be 16% higher than they were in 2010. But compare that with scientists telling us that to stay in the safe zone, we need to cut our emissions in half by 2030. So the pledges offered already are going to give us 16% more emissions, but we need to be cutting drastically. So we're just nowhere close to where we need to be. And the fundamental problem with this process is that it's voluntary. There's nothing binding. There's no enforcement. So countries can basically do whatever they want to do and there's no consequences. Now, I do not want to speak negatively of the people involved in that negotiation who made that happen, because Paris 2015 was a big step forward for humanity. So I do want to congratulate those folks for taking us farther than had been previously. And it's certainly better than having nothing. So I don't want to like trash talk it and say those people are bad, but the reality is here we are with this process that doesn't give me faith that it's working. Um, in a moment, I'll return to this international thing and this problem with the voluntary process. But to better understand the psychology of that, I want to talk about individuals. So us as individual people. I experience this in my day-to-day -day life as I try to be a good person and be good to the environment and good to the climate. I try to really um, be mindful of my consumption, to not buy stuff I don't need, to not drive more than I need. I don't fly. I don't like, I try not to do wasteful things because I care about the planet. It's really hard for me to sacrifice when everyone around me is being wasteful. It's hard for me to feel like it makes a difference. And so I have to really coach myself to keep up my good behavior and do the right thing because I go out in public and I see everybody just like using a bunch of disposable things and over-consuming and living in houses bigger than they need. And like, we're turning up nature into disposable things, you know? And so this is what I'm up against as I try to do the right thing and try to conserve for the environment. Um, now, some people, I think, simply don't care about the environment. 
or don't care about climate. And there are even some who don't even believe in climate change. But I think they are a small vocal minority. I think most people do actually care. And most people understand that this is a problem. Um, but even people I know who say that they understand and say that they care don't appear to be doing much to help because they're still consuming a lot of stuff. And I think this is because all of us are, you know, like I'm just one person among 8 billion people on the planet. So it's easy to wonder, well, what difference do I make? Whether I consume a lot or I sacrifice and cut back, what difference does it make? I'm just one in 8 billion people. And so because of this dynamic, it's hard for individuals to feel like their actions make a difference. Um, and without any proper systems to try to get everybody aligned, the best it seems we've pulled off so far is just begging individuals to be good and sacrifice and consume less and be aware of their carbon footprint and try to cut back. We've just been simply begging individuals and we've been doing that for decades and I just don't see it working. So because people keep consuming and consuming like this, I think politicians may misunderstand what's happening and think that people are unwilling to cut back and unwilling to consume less. I really don't think so, though. My gut feeling and analysis tells me that many, many people are willing but we need policies that help us do it all at the same time so that I'm not putting myself out uselessly when everybody around me is still consuming. But with proper public policy, it can get us all aligned so that we're doing it at the same time. So then I will know and you will know that our sacrifice makes a difference because everyone around us is doing it also. So it's going to actually accomplish something. So on the level of individuals or, you know, towns, cities, states, country, whatever, policies can make fossil fuel more expensive or make renewable energy cheaper and easier to use. So then that's the way we're all going to go. Um, and there can be policies that discourage overall consumption, especially of all this cheap disposable stuff that consumes a lot of resources. Um, this level of public policy, I'm going to talk about more in future episodes of the show. Right now, I want to speak more internationally. But this pattern of individuals having trouble um, sacrificing when everybody else doesn't, this kind of thing happens with countries also. And it's the same psychology, I believe. So as countries and, and politicians that run countries consider how to best help the climate and the environment, um, they notice that changing our energy systems and changing our whole economy is really hard work. There's nothing easy or simple about this because fossil fuels are ingrained in 
every part of our lives and we need energy to do just about everything. In the long term, countries that make this transition will end up having cheaper energy, have a healthier natural environment that's vibrant, and might even have a stronger economy. But in the short term, it's expensive because those upfront costs to paying for solar panels and wind turbines and upgrading electricity grids and all that stuff, or the uh, environmental protection, especially of forests and things where we need to absorb carbon dioxide. Um, it's complex, hard work to craft those policies and regulations and give or, get everybody on board. And in this transition, I think our government leaders are feeling some risk. Um, I think a lot of politicians do want to make this transition, but they don't want to damage their country's economy doing it. And they especially don't want to risk damaging their economy when other countries might continue using fossil fuels. So government leaders don't want to put their own country at a disadvantage compared with other countries. And countries all compete in this global economy. We're all in this economy together. So in this current situation where everyone just does what they want, it's really hard for a country to sacrifice when other countries are not. And on top of this, there's a long history of countries not fulfilling their international agreements. So the UN, for instance, when some war will happen or some natural disaster or some catastrophe, they'll do some fundraising and they'll say, hey, countries, can you pitch in to help these poor people that we're trying to help? And countries say, yeah, sure, we'll kick in some money. And then they don't kick in the money and they don't fulfill the promise they just made. This happens over and over and over. Or even in just the regular annual funding of the United Nations, countries don't always pay their bills, including the United States, which is the biggest funder of the UN, has often fallen behind in its annual payments that it's supposed to contribute. Um, and then even on climate change, um, based on the Paris 2015 um, agreement and this ongoing um, climate process, wealthier countries agreed to kick in $100 billion per year to help poor developing countries make their transition to renewable energy. And they haven't been doing it. They're falling way short of this $100 billion per year goal. And that money is essential because Poor countries, they can't afford the nice new fancy solar panels or to upgrade their grid or whatever. And so it's an international funding effort to get this done. And countries committed to do this and they're just not doing it. So there's this long history of countries not following their promises. So it's, it's hard for one country to trust that if they sacrifice, the rest of the world is going to sacrifice too. So this issue right here, if we don't solve this, we will not fix the climate. We have to have ways to get everybody on board and taking action at the same time. Um, and even the United States, which is seen as a world leader and leader of international affairs, has flip-flops 
and they're not always consistent. Um, so President Trump removed the United States from the Paris Agreement, and you know presidents change. You know, Democrat versus Republican. So the world knows that no matter what President Biden promises in these upcoming negotiations, it could all be different in four years or eight years under a different president. So you know, this international process maybe needs to be America-proofed or, you know, uh, proofed against other countries flip-flopping like this. So it needs to be harder for a country to withdraw from the agreement or to not follow its promises. Um, so I propose that we put in place systems that impose consequences for countries that don't get on board and help us solve the climate mess. I would suggest a system of economic sanctions. We have a history in the world of imposing economic sanctions on bad countries doing bad things. You know, if they're abusing their own people or they're um, being belligerent with their neighbors or there's violence or whatever, there's a long history of using economic sanctions why not use similar economic sanctions to protect the climate? Since this is like an existential threat where human civilization could collapse because of this, I think it's worth it, you know? Um, to do this kind of economic sanctioning, we do not have to have every country on the planet agree to that. We just need a critical mass of countries willing to do that and willing to stick together as a block so that that block of countries can economically hurt the other countries if they damage the climate. Now, if I could wave my magic wand and make things how I want, we would convert from this voluntary process we have to something with more teeth that would be binding. But one downside of that could be that I don't want to throw out countries' plans that they've been working on, because countries have been working over these last five years or six years to um, come up with ways to cut their emissions and change their policies and all that stuff. So I don't want to really throw all that out and start from scratch, but I think we could establish a floor a baseline that everyone has to meet, at least. And countries can go beyond that and do more if they wish to, and we hope that they will, but say that every country has to reduce their emissions at least by a certain percentage. Now, for countries, you know, poorer countries with a small economy, that percentage of their small economy is going to be pretty small but worthwhile and worth doing, whereas that percentage of a large country with a large economy, that percentage will be a meaningful chunk. And it could even be weighted by current emission levels between countries. So our bigger emitters in the world cut more than the smaller emitters. Um, but at least with that baseline, we know that everyone is at least going to do something. Um, and then use that economic sanctioning system to enforce it. But then also, even aside from that, like everybody cutting a percentage or how much emissions they cut or whatever, we can also use sanctions against the worst behavior on the climate. 
So for instance, countries should no longer be giving subsidies to fossil fuel industries. That just simply should not be allowed anymore. And it's shocking that it's still happening. There's millions or billions of dollars going to fossil fuels. That's ridiculous, and that just needs to stop. So that kind of economic sanction could apply there. Also, it could be used to make sure countries do not build any new fossil fuel infrastructure. So amid this climate crisis, there are still countries building coal-powered plants um, or installing new um, pipelines to carry gas and oil and such. Um, no more fossil fuel infrastructure. Just stop it. These economic sanctions could apply to make sure countries stop it. Um, countries need to stop the deforestation, especially those countries that are home to rainforests, which are critically important to managing the climate. Um, they need to just stop tearing down the forest or else it's going to hurt them economically. But then to help with all that stuff I just mentioned, poorer countries need money to get that done. Like I said, if they're going to make their climate transition, if they're going to protect the rainforest, etc., they really may need some help from wealthier countries. And so a system of economic sanctions could make sure that those countries kick in money to the fund that's going to pay for the poorer countries to get that done. And so if you don't pay into the fund like you've promised, then you're going to have some economic sanctions and that's going to cost you money. So all this kind of approach I'm describing, country, the governments of countries may resist doing this because a lot of countries simply don't want to be told what to do. They see themselves as a sovereign nation in control of their own business and they want to do what they want to do. But if a country actually plans to follow through on its commitment, they really have nothing to worry about with a new approach by this, a, a new approach like this, because these systems will bring the other countries along with them. And it's just simply a way to get everybody to act at the same time. And really, if countries resist this kind of approach to have teeth to it, to have economic sanctions or other consequences, then I think that's an indicator that they're full of shit and their promises are meaningless. Because countries have been allowed to make promises and not fulfill them. That's a problem. And so I'm tired of the fake promises. They just need to stop. And so imposing this kind of economic um, teeth to the issue, this could be a good bullshit meter. This could be a really good way to see if countries are serious about their commitment or if they're just giving us empty platitudes. So we need to get serious in a way that we have not yet. Now, the most likely bad outcome here that I'm worried about is that out of this COP26 in November, countries are going to, you know, release this nice sounding thing and say they came up with these agreements and they made a lot of nice promises that sound good, that they made um, 
you know, these these goals, these targets, these whatever. Um, and yeah, we're going to cut emissions and it's going to be great. But then in a few years, we find out the countries did not meet their promises. That would be tragic because we cannot afford to lose a few years here. We're already way too late in this process. We already have way too much damage happening to the world than we should have tolerated. So we cannot afford empty promises that waste a few years. We don't have the time to waste. And that's why I'm hoping that people involved in these negotiations are going to come up with a system that has teeth that actually makes something happen. And as we all um, await the outcome of that negotiation and deal with our political officials afterwards, we need to have very high expectations. We need to expect something with teeth. We don't want to just have empty promises because we can't tolerate that anymore. We need so much better. All right, that's what I've got for you for today. Thank you for being with me. Thanks for sp spending some time here. Thanks for your concern about climate change because it is really intensely important. And um, let's hang in there and just get this done. I hope that you'll share this show with other people, share it with friends, family, coworkers, whoever, um, because we need everybody on board with these issues. And please hit the like button, subscribe, comment, all that good stuff. Until next time, let's be the best people we can be. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening, but you're not done yet. We can't change the world if we keep the joy of saving the human race to ourselves. Help me spread the word and help this movement grow. Please subscribe to the show, both the podcast and the YouTube channel. Leave ratings or reviews, which encourages others to listen. Share this show with others on your social media. Even better, just tell a friend about it and have a good conversation about the state of the world. These things really make a difference. I hope you can help the show grow and reach a larger audience. I'm grateful for your help. Thank you. And please stay in touch with me. I love to get feedback, suggestions, and questions. Go to the website at joyofsavingthehumanrace.com. At the website, you'll learn more about the show, and you can sign up to get occasional email updates. Thanks to Moby for the show's theme music, and thanks to you for being here. All right, we're done for today. Be well. I'll talk to you soon.